Hi, my name is Mina. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. One day in the fourth century, a woman with enough time and means left for a three-year tour of biblical places. This type of travel was not unusual at that time, but Egeria was on a reporting trip where she wrote down her findings for her friends at home. Her writings have become very valuable to historians. As we're approaching what today is known as Easter, we can turn to her diary to see how some Christians celebrated Christ's resurrection. I am Lucas, and I am 15. My name is Lucy, and I'm 16. And I'm Linus, I'm 12. All three of us live in San Diego, California. Today, we're going to explore the world of Egeria and follow her on some of her travels. We actually don't know much about her because she didn't talk about herself. We only know her name, and even that has different spellings. Most scholars think she was born in Spain. Her Latin was unrefined and even strange at times, but clear and lively. She was a bit like a reporter, spending time in each place she visited, asking questions and writing down her findings. She had to describe everything because she couldn't take any photos or videos. And everywhere she went, she thanked God for allowing her to take this trip. The result was the oldest text of this kind written by a woman. Around what time period was she writing it? Well, many scholars think that she wrote it between the years 381 and 384. Uh, That would be about 70 years after Emperor Constantine made Christianity legal and only a couple of years after Emperor Theodosius made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. But it also could have been a bit later than that. It looks like she had a list of questions for the monks and bishops that she met on her way. That's just like what we do on this podcast. (laughs) Yeah, except we don't have to leave our homes. But reading her account does kind of make me wish that I could go back in time to travel with her. Where did she travel? She traveled to lots of places like Constantinople, Israel, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. Once she followed the route that, according to the monks she'd met, Moses and the Israelites had taken. She also climbed Mount Sinai. It was very difficult for her to go up and down, but it gave her an idea of how Moses might have felt traversing that mountain. When she reached the top, she was surprised to find a group of monks celebrating the Lord's Supper. Would she walk everywhere or ride a horse? Uh, I read that she traveled by either mule or donkey, but she also walked to some places. And she wasn't alone either. She probably had some companions and some guides. Along the way, she met Roman soldiers and other travelers on camels. She talked to bishops and monks, and she became close friends with a woman named Marthana who supervised a convent of nuns. At least once, she got some soldiers to escort her through a dangerous portion of her journey, and she had a set ritual. When she arrived in the new place, she started with a prayer, then read something from the Bible that had to do with that place. Uh, It sounds pretty fun and adventurous, but not everyone agreed with these kinds of travels, right? Right. Some authors like Athanasius, Jerome, and Gregory of Nyssa warned Christians to base their faith on God's word and not on physical places. Visiting Israel and seeing where Jesus lived could be inspiring and fun, but it's not essential to our faith. Yes, that's definitely an important warning to give. Uh, We could say that seeing the places where the biblical events took place confirmed Egeria's faith, since Christianity is based on historical facts, but we are brought to Christ through the gospel we hear and not the places we see. And Gregory uh, was especially concerned about some people who said all Christians had to see Jerusalem. 
but that's creating a new duty that isn't in the Bible. But Egeria seemed to be more like a reporter, describing what she saw without mentioning any opinions or preferences. Uh, she didn't say, you must all do this. Uh, what do you think about that? Uh, well, from what I saw, I agree. Sometimes she was surprised, like when she saw so many decorations in the churches in Jerusalem, that everything seemed to be made out of gold. She didn't say if she agreed or disagreed, but I would have disagreed with that teaching. Yeah, in our church denomination, we like churches to be simple, without distractions. And Jerusalem tended to go all out with the celebrations of Christ's resurrection with all the events that came before it. They started with the Saturday before Palm Sunday to remember how Jesus brought Lazarus back to life six days before the Passover. Yes, the Passover was the biggest celebration in the early church. Even way back in the second century, Christians celebrated it with sermons showing how Jesus was the true Passover lamb and the blood of the lamb on the doorposts was really a symbol or type of Christ's blood shed for our salvation. That's what many of us still do on Good Friday. And in Antioch, they even celebrated it in a cemetery. In Jerusalem, they went to the places where Jesus went the last week before his crucifixion, like the Mount of Olives. There was a lot of preaching, singing, praying, and walking from place to place for the whole week. Children must have liked Palm Sunday. They would get to follow the crowds and carry branches of palm and olive trees through the streets. Actually, children were present at every celebration, but it's true that Palm Sunday must have been one of the most eventful ones. And at the beginning of the 5th century, it was normal to have daily sermons. So this continued during the Easter celebrations. And during that time, there could be even more than one sermon per day. So Christians went to church every day? Uh, I'm not sure that everyone did. Monks could do it, or people who went on long journeys, such as Egeria. There were also some Christians who chose to spend the last years of their lives in Jerusalem. You could say they were retired, so they had time to hear a sermon every day. Well, we have more to say about Egeria, but first, let's stop for a moment to read our mailbox. This week, we have a question from seven-year-old Isaac in Raleigh, North Carolina, who asked, how did people travel at the time of the early church? His sister Grace wants a more detailed answer about the type of horses they used, but that might be beyond our expert's knowledge. We also have a question from John Jacobson, who says he really appreciates our show and wants to know how the church calendar was formed, and especially why the times chosen for Christmas and Easter are what they are. Thank you, Isaac, Grace, and John. We appreciate your encouragement. And let me remind our listeners, if you have a question or comment, you can email it to questions at kidstalkchurchhistory.org or go to our website at kidstalkchurchhistory.org and enter to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's Church History, courtesy of Reformation Heritage Books. And now we welcome our special guest on today's podcast, Dr. Stefana Lang. Dr. Lang graduated with a double major in ancient and medieval history and has three children, Sydney, Sophia, and Alice Dare. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Dr. Lang, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I'm an associate professor of divinity at Beeson Divinity School, and it's in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, I've been here for about the past five years. And uh, you did get my kids' names correct. And let me just say, they're right about the ages that y'all are. So Alistair is the youngest, and he's 14. Sophia is the middle, and she's 15. And Sydney is my oldest, and she is 17. 
So I'm pretty close in age to you guys. Hmm. Thank you. So uh, let's start with Isaac's question. We already mentioned that Egeria traveled by mule or donkey or by foot, but is that how people uh, really traveled in those days? Yeah, this is a great question uh, and a question that I'm very interested in, but haven't really had an excuse to uh, look a little more into it. I've seen bits and pieces of, of how people travel from different sources. So there were quite a few people traveling um, at the time that Egeria was, was moving around. And you were right in your discussion um, just earlier that people who had time and money were the ones mostly traveling. Well, there were people who had to travel for for business or to go to a conference or something like that. But um, yeah, people traveled by mule, donkey, horses, sometimes camels, especially in the East when they had to cross through desert areas. So the mode of transportation depended on what, what they could afford and also on the terrain that they were traveling. So um, wealthy people could afford animal-drawn carts or carriages, and um, sometimes very fancy carriages were uh, carried by people called porters. Um, People traveled in groups. They traveled in caravans uh, for safety, for companionship. Like you all said, um, Egeria had people who, uh, who went with her, who escorted her. And um, um, in in some places, Egeria was accompanied by some military troops who were stationed out in different areas and provinces of the empire. So uh, they provided security, a little bit like a like a security uh, detail. So she had escorts that took her through parts of Syria and also parts of the um, of the Egyptian desert. So. Um, you know, travel and sightseeing were um, not unusual, not just in Nigeria's time, but for about, you know, 800 years, even before that, we've got, um, we've got documents of people's travels, um, mainly, you know, people who wanted to go and see parts of the world that they had just heard of, or maybe had um, read about, you know, in, in the great myths, they wanted to see where great battles and great events took place. So um, there were people traveling and writing um, diaries, you know, the sites that they had seen. And um, so Egeria falls uh, sort of right into that um, that kind of tradition. Now, her diary, of course, is different. She's on a devotional trip, right? She's going on a pilgrimage. She's not just going to um, to sightsee. And I think that might have been a little bit of the concern for some of these bishops like Athanasius that you guys mentioned. Um, you know, people just sort of going out of curiosity, not really um, out of devotion, and then making it like a rule, like you have to go. Um, or else you're not spiritual. So um, people traveled in in all those different ways. Egeria mentions some some parts where um, she's traveling on an animal and then other parts that are steeper. She says we had to get off and climb up uh, ourselves by foot. So I think you're I think you're right on point um, as you described uh, ways of uh, ways of traveling. I don't think we know what kind of horses exactly were used. <laughs> just to just to clarify that. So, okay. well, uh, I got another question. Would you be able to tell us briefly, or as briefly as you can, 
how the church calendar was formed and especially why the times chosen for Christmas and Easter were what they were. Yeah, this is this is not um, too brief of a of a question, but I'm going to I'm going to give it my best shot. OK, um, let me just say God's people traveled through life, through rhythms and seasons. And this is what we see all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. So rhythms and seasons. What we see in the Old Testament specifically are some big feasts. There are a lot of little feasts as well. I mean, there's like a feast every month, you know, new moon feast. Um, But there are feasts throughout the year. And the biggest ones are the feasts of Passover, Tabernacles, or a harvest feast, and Pentecost. So those are the three um, feasts that, you know, the, the rhythm of the Jewish year went according and these are feasts that Jesus also followed. The church calendar was formed by moving through the seasons of Jesus's life. And so that's the real focus for the Christian calendar, Jesus's life. Um, I'll probably um, overlap a little bit about the dates of, of Easter and how Easter was chosen. Um, Easter was not hard to establish, nor all the feasts that um, are associated with Easter, like Ascension, 40 days later, and Pentecost, again, um, with the, the Jewish feasts sort of underlying the Christian calendar. But rituals arose around these celebrations pretty early, and documents Egeria's recorded various devotional practices, especially in places close to the stories of Jesus's life, like like Jerusalem that uh, you guys mentioned just before. So the church calendar begins at Advent, 40 days before December 25. And then, um, you know, Christmas doesn't just end at December 25. There's a Christmas season. There are 12, the 12 days of Christmas. And that's not, that's not necessarily a a secular thing. Um, The church celebrated days of Christmas from the 25th all the way until the 6th which is the feast of epiphany, which just means manifestation, the manifestation of Jesus. So um, this is a kind of longer answer that we don't have time to go into, but there are some Christian groups that celebrate Christmas on January the 6th. So they celebrate both Jesus's um, birth, also his baptism, and also his first miracle at the wedding of Cana. They celebrate that on um, January the 6th. Sixth, and they also celebrate the coming of the wise men. So, in some traditions, that's called Three Kings Day. So, January sixth is a also an, an important day. And so, um, from January sixth um, until what's called Ash Wednesday and the season of Lent, there are um, a number, a number of days there. Epiphany season lasts until Ash Wednesday. And you know, the day right before Ash Wednesday, we call it Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. Mm. That's because people are gearing up for a long season, um, known as Lent, a long season of fasting. And so they're, you know, kind of stuffing themselves <laughs> traditionally, not very spiritual, right? Um, but the, the day before, the big fast begins. And so Lent is 40 days, excluding Sundays. Okay. Sunday is never a fast day. Sunday is always a celebration day because we are thinking about uh, Jesus's resurrection that day. So 40 days, 
excluding Sundays of fasting until we get to Easter Sunday. So, you know, what kind of fasting? Well, people do fasting in a lot of different ways in the Catholic church and the Orthodox church. Um, there's usually a week by week fasting of giving up some kind of food, you know, throughout those weeks. But um, in, you know, Protestant traditions, um, my tradition, maybe your tradition, there might be a tradition of giving up something. So fasting from something, um, it could be food or it could be um, something else. Um, so Lent goes those 40 days to Easter Sunday. Um, and the, the last seven days before Easter, we've got um, Holy Week. And Egeria does describe a lot that happened during Holy Week in Jerusalem. It's very valuable information. Um, Holy Week precedes Easter Sunday. And um, what happened then was that devout believers were retracing Jesus's movements and his teachings uh, on those days. So again, it's focused on the life of Jesus. And that week, that Holy Week culminates in the three days of Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday from the evening until the, the resurrection very early on Sunday. That has a name, those three days. It's called the Triduum, right? The, the three days, that cluster. Um, and then just like Christmas extends past December 25th, Easter goes past um, Easter Sunday. So Egeria describes this towards the end of what we have, and that's called the octave of Easter. There are eight days and the eighth day. So the following Sunday, that's known as, um, Thomas Sunday. So it gives kind of special focus to Thomas's confession, you know, because he wasn't with the disciples, um, when Jesus first appeared from Easter Sunday, then, you know, we moved to Ascension 40 days later, and then Pentecost um, on the 50th day and the descent of the Holy Spirit, uh, what we would consider the birth of the church. And then between Pentecost and again, Advent, there's a long span of a number of months that we speak about in terms of the church's growth. So a lot of you know discipleship that's happening there, a lot of um, growth as we um, celebrate the work of the Holy Spirit in believers and in prospering and spreading church and its influence. So the, the date of Easter, basically there was some disagreement earlier in the church in the fourth century about setting the date of Easter. The way that it's calculated now is um, as agreed after the Council of Nicaea, basically, that Easter is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. So Easter could be earlier or it could be later in the year. It could be in March or it could be in, in April. So that's why that's, that's what we call a movable feast. Um, Christmas was um, decided upon a little bit differently Christmas was chosen um, kind of in the fourth century after Constantine, kind of you know, in concert with um, with Constantine, basically to overshadow the feast of the Invincible Sun, Sol Invictus. So, um, actually, some of the church fathers, like uh, probably some that you've talked about, I know you talked about the Cappadocians uh, a, a little while back. Some of the church fathers like Gregory of Nazianzen and also John Chrysostom and others 
um, introduced and promoted the date of December 25 to the faithful in the different cities in which they worked. They promoted this this date and this um, feast and all the accompanying rituals and, and devotional um, activities through their preaching and through their liturgy. So I'm sorry that wasn't too brief, but <laughs> I hope okay. that helps you kind of uh, understand um, these uh, these questions. I hope that helps the listeners. I hope that satisfies the listeners a little bit. So about those octaves that you mentioned and how Egeria wrote about them, when were those writings discovered? Well, Egeria, if about when Egeria's diary was first found. Yeah. Her, her diary was first found in uh, about 1884. There was a period of time of, you know, kind of back and forth discussion about what, what was the name of this woman whose writings were found? Was it Etheria or Egeria or Eheria, you know, Euheria? So, um, there, there wasn't agreement for a while, but basically this document was discovered um, in the late um, 1800s, 1880s. And, um, a, you know, we don't have the very beginning, we don't have the very end, and we don't have some material right in the middle, right? So there, you know, a, a page missing apparently in the middle. So if we, if we had the beginning, obviously we'd know a little more about the author. Um, but this is, this is the document that has come down to us. And um, we're grateful for the, the insight, the sort of window that it opens on Christian worship and pilgrimage. In Egeria's diary, personally, I found her enthusiasm and eagerness to learn uh, quite refreshing, as well as her diligence in uh, praising God every step of the way on her journey. So I was just wondering, uh, Dr. Lang, what kind of, what, things in her diary do you appreciate? Well, one thing I, I really love what you have mentioned as well. And I find it very inspiring and uplifting that her main interest in traveling wasn't just curiosity, but it was to retrace the steps of God's people in the scripture, um, you know, personally, and to uh, devotionally remember um, those important events because they constitute the the substance of God's providence for his people. And so I'll, I also love to see, uh, to read on uh, the, um, the worship, um, habits that she had every time that she went to one of these special places. I think, uh, one of the other things that I really love about her diary is just the way that she, um, evokes for us the sights and sounds of her travel. So for example, in what in, in my version here is labeled um, chapter six or section six, after she leaves uh, Mount Sinai and she's going through the desert of Paran, um, she is describing um, what she sees in these mountain ranges as as they're coming out from, they're coming down and out from the mountain where the land opens up and you go beside um, the Red Sea. And she says, um, she talks about a resting station where she stayed the night. And she says, this is the spot where one comes out from among the mountains and once again begins to walk right beside the sea. 
so near the sea that at times the waves strike the animal's feet. Yet at other times, the route is through the desert at 100, 200, and sometimes as many as 500 feet from the sea. Uh, there's no road there at all, only the sands of the desert all around. She talks about how the people who live there place um, travel markers there so that you don't get lost in a desert. But I really love like that little line about how she's hearing the, the waves lap up on the shore to where the animal that she's on is stepping through the, the water, splashing through the water. And um, I just, I can see it there. I can sort of see myself there. And it's, um, it's, it's exciting. It makes me want to go to. Yeah. Uh, I also like, I don't, I think everyone can appreciate vivid descriptions to the point where you can imagine yourself being there. Yeah. But, uh, how unusual was this kind of trip? I think uh, Helena, mother of the emperor Constantine took a long trip too uh, when she was in her eighties. Yeah, for sure. It was not that unusual for people who had time and means. There were um, other royals and uh, aristocratic women who went traveling to these sacred sites. They took uh, devotional journeys and, um, it, you know, pilgrim travel to what we call now the Holy Land was not unusual at that time. Monks traveled, of course, um, but part of the vow that they took was stability. So they, you know, they weren't really allowed to move around all that much. What really fascinates me is um, how, where Egeria went, there was already a church set up. There was already a, a building there or a shrine. There was a person there to administer that site. There was a community there who met her and said, um, you know, welcome. They showed her hospitality and they said, you know, we'll show you where to rest and feed you. And we'll show you all the things that you're interested in seeing. They already knew what she wanted to see. I get the impression that some of these sites she has visited before and they remember her from before. Um, but there was a little bit of a um, Holy Land tourist industry that was going on even at that point um, in the fourth century. And, uh, you know, lots of people went by there, the monks or whoever was in those places, like the staff in some way, they knew what people wanted to see because they wanted to see the places they read about in the scripture. And they knew that just like now, um, some people go to Holy Land, it's a once in a lifetime trip. And they were drawn there because of the scriptures. They want to see the places that they have read about. They want to, you know, step in those places. They want to breathe that air. They want to touch uh, what's there. And um, they find that kind of experience very spiritually uplifting and moving. Dr. Lang, we're very thankful that you decided to spend this time with us and share your knowledge about Egeria. But uh, now it's time to say goodbye. Once again, dear listeners, make sure to visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, for the opportunity to win a copy of Simonetta Carr's book, Church History. That's also where you'll find all of our podcasts, special offers, news, and more. And don't forget to tell your friends where they can find us. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Linus and Lucy, I am Lucas. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History.